Welcome to my podcast called Lindy Line. This is a podcast where you will hear an original story serialized over the next few days and weeks. The story was originally written in 2015. The idea of the story began in 2014 when a couple of young ladies and their parents wrote to me and said, Simon, could you create a very short story for our kids? Well, I started to write a short story for these two kids and the story got longer and longer and longer and longer until it became this book. So thanks to Riley and Avery for inspiring this story. The story of Lindy Line. Chapter One By Way of an Introduction In a far, far away country, in a long, long ago time, lived a fair queen and a handsome king. Between them they had two daughters. When the girls were tiny and still sucking on dummies and were wearing nappies, some people call them pacifiers and diapers, the girls were somewhat similar. But as they stretched and grew, they began to differentiate themselves. Some people would say they became different or individual. They lived in the kingdom called the Land of Lindyline, or just Lindyline for short. Some kings and queens live in huge castles, have massive armies, treasuries, sometimes people call those rooms filled with money, and some kingdoms like to fight other kingdoms and behave generally very badly. The king and queen of Lindyline, however, were not at all like that. They had a perfect-sized castle which housed the family and all the retainers, you know, staff, and some extra rooms for guests. They had a few barns and paddocks, or enclosures, which housed a large cow called Horace, a medium dog of mixed breed called Tulip, and a Great Dane, who was the size of a small pony, called Tiddles. They had two large ponies called Go Lucky and Happy, the pig was called Rampling, and they lived with a large fat cat called Fat Cat, although sometimes the king called it Pudding. Every winter, when food in some homes became scarce, some might say in short supply, the king and queen of the land of Lindyline would hold a great feast, a celebration of the winter solstice, and of longer and warmer days to come. The bakers baked many different types of bread and rolls. The cooks made various soups of different tastes and colours. The chefs created meals that the mere smell of would make you feel satisfied or full. There were pastry chefs and cake bakers who made desserts that angels and devils alike would fight for and then share because they were so divine. The finest vintners, some would say winemakers, and brewers made the finest wines and beers, such as dandelion, burdock, birch, root, and on special occasions, ginger beer. And the kingdom's cheesemakers were renowned, some would say famous, for the varieties and types of cheese that they made. Everyone in the kingdom would come to this feast. If someone was sick or couldn't be there for some reason, the king would send carts filled with bread, dried meats and fish, canned goods and, of course, cheese. No one wanted to miss the feast. It wasn't just because of the food and drink, but also because the king and queen invited jesters, jugglers, musicians and dancers, fire breathers, acrobats and the family's favourite storytellers. Everyone would come to the feast. 
everyone except one man. This man lived deep in the forest, and few people knew of him, and even fewer knew his name. Chapter 2 Michaelmas sat in his hut next to the meagre, some say small, fire which was flickering and crackling in the large stone fireplace. He wiggled his toes trying to keep them warm. A large raven jumped up onto the arm of the chair and Michaelmas scratched the bird under its beak until the bird gently nipped at the tip of the old man's finger. Michaelmas smiled and said, You know, Jonesy, that big feast at the castle is coming right up. The king and queen will be feeding their neighbours and giving gifts to them in, what, three days? The raven cawed and flapped down to get closer to the fire. You feeling the cold too, old friend? He studied the bird for a while and frowned. Jonesy, I think this year we should go. The raven looked at the old man and tilted his head as Michaelmas rubbed what looked like a short and neat beard. Tucking his thumbs under his chin, Michaelmas pulled his beard out, unrolling it down over his chest and across his lap. He unbraided it and, pulling out a worn brush from a pocket in his robes, pulled it through the beard. He was thinking about something. I have a feeling something bad is going to happen. We should go. Michaelmas sighed and looked at the raven. I don't suppose you could go and get Jack, could you, my friend? The raven Michaelmas was calling Jonesy ruffled his feathers and looked sideways at the old man for a moment, and then back at the fire. The black bird hopped with reluctance from the fireplace and cawed. The old man stood up and opened a window. A cold wind blew in as the raven flew out on the early morning air. Thank you, old friend, Michaelmas said his soft white beard now fallen to his knees, blue in the breeze. Jonesy stretched his black wings and flew through the forest, staying in the trees. It was slightly warmer in amongst the trees than above them, even if the journey might take longer this way. He glided down, eventually coming to a clearing, in the centre of which was a large oak tree. Some believed that the tree was over 300 years old, those who knew of it. Nothing but grass grew beneath the outstretched boughs of the oak, which shaded the ground from most of the sun. The sons and daughters of the tree grew about it. The tree's grandchildren and great-grandchildren grew further off in the forest. If you were to walk around the tree and run your fingers over the rough surface of the trunk, you would find in its great girth, some would say circumference, something like a fold or crease. If you had it in your mind to look down and had a bright enough candle to peek into the base of the fold, you might see the smallest of doors, but only if you had a mind to look down and had a candle to see it by. Jonesy did not need a candle, for he knew where the door was. He also knew the door belonged to the home of the elf called Jack, whom he had been sent to invite to Michaelmas's hut. Jonesy hopped onto the crease and tapped the door with his beak. The bird waited a while and tapped again, and cawed, moving from foot to foot. A light laugh filled the air, and the raven looked up into the branches of the oak tree. There, on a twig, off a branch, on the tree, was Jack the elf, 
swinging his legs and laughing. The raven cawed again and lifted itself into the air and landed on the branch. The elf stood and walked down the twig and sat next to where the bird sat. If you or I could understand ravens the way Jack did, we might have heard Jonesy tell Jack about Michaelmas and the troubles which were on his mind about the great feast. And if we had seen the tiny figure the raven was talking to, we would have seen him nodding his head and climbing onto the raven's back. And if we stayed watching, we would have seen the two of them take off into the sky and fly back through the forest towards Michaelmas's cottage. Chapter 3. The Unicorn's Family Do you know what a pegasus is? It's a great winged horse. Do you know what a unicorn is? Well, I suppose you might, but real unicorns are not very big. They're the size of a beautifully lean pony, but with a horn, of course. Entering the far side of the forest was a pegasus, a unicorn, and their young mare, some may say girl, a unisus. You don't know what a unisus is? Well, a unisus can be made when a pegasus and unicorn get together on a beautiful spring evening, if they so desire. This particular spring evening happened two years ago, and the three creatures were now fleeing. They had been spotted and had been trailed. For now, they had lost the hunter. They believed that the hunter wanted the horn from the unicorn and the wing feathers from the pegasus. You see, there is great magic in the unicorn's horn. And if we were to possess, some might say own, the feathers taken from a pegasus, one can gain the power and gift of flight. These two things together are very powerful indeed, and in the right hands could do much good. However, if they fall into the wrong hands, well, let's just say they should never fall into the wrong hands. The unicorn was the last of its kind in Lindyline, but nobody knew this. The unicorn is such an elusive, some say secret, creature that no one knew how many unicorns existed in the world, how many had died, how many had been born, and if any had been captured by naughty dragons and not allowed to have babies. If we were in the forest and had seen this happy, although tired, family of creatures, if we understood their language, we would have heard them talking, and this is what we would have heard them say. We have to keep moving until it's deep night, the Pegasus said. But our daughter is so, so tired, Akamas. We've been travelling for days and days. Harp will be okay, maybe another hour or so, and then we can rest, Adele. But we've been moving since before dawn. I can't count how many miles we have covered. And now the sun has set. Can we please rest, darling? Please, Daddy, the tired Eunices said. Akamas slowed down and looked at his daughter, Harp. Adele, his wife, came up to him and nibbled his neck. OK, he said. Harp pressed against the great warm sides of her father as he lay down and she sank to the ground next to him. Why is the hunter after us? she said. Akamas looked at Adele before he spoke. I don't know, Harp. I really don't know. And I wish I did. Chapter 4. Jack the Elf Michaelmas stirred the soup while the warm bread steamed on the table. Jonesy hopped onto the man's shoulder, 
peered into the small kettle, cauldron to some people, before the old man swung it back over the flames. I know you can't smell, Jonesy, but it does smell good, doesn't it, Jack? It most certainly does, and I can't wait to see if it tastes every bit as good. Thank you for allowing me to entertain you this evening, Jack, and letting Jonesy bring you immediately, said Michaelmas. Oh, the pleasure is all mine, replied the elf. It seems it is. I do not see your harp with you, so I suppose we will be doing all the entertaining, eh? Jonesy cawed. Yes, you can sing too. The old man waved a small flute at the elf, which had been resting on the table. I thought we would have a duet, Jack, with you on the harp, but if you came immediately, which was very good of you, there was no time to grab it, the harp. Jonesy did say it was important, said the elf. I hope it is not, but I fear that it is. Let me get the soup. Michaelmas turned from the elf and swung the kettle off the fire. He took a cup the size of a thimble and dipped it into the soup. Although it burned him a little, he did not say anything. He simply took a cloth and wiped the outside of the tiny cup and then his finger. He walked over and placed it on the table next to Jack. He broke a piece of bread and placed that on a plate with, which was equal in size to the cup, extraordinarily small. He broke another piece of bread larger than the first, and dipped it into the soup. He placed that on a plate in front of Jonesy. Michaelmas then helped himself to a bowl of soup and hunk of bread, and sitting down, blessed the food. So, he said, knifing a slab of butter onto the bread, last night I had a dream about the feast. It had something to do with the young princess and some horse-like creatures. My sources tell me a winged horse and a unicorn came to the forest today, said Jack. Hmm. It's been a long time since there's been either of those creatures in the forest. I wonder what brings them here, and what that might have to do with the princess. What's her name, the youngest one? Jonesy called. Ah, oh, yes, Avery. Funny that you, a bird, would remember that, smiled Michaelmas. The bird squawked at the old man and shook his head. Why didn't you bring the harp, Jack? Jack looked at the old man. Well, I thought you were in a rush, so I came straight away. Jack looked puzzled. Why'd you ask? Well, the harp had something to do with the dream, too. I thought that it was because I, I might need your help, but something tells me it's something else to do with the harp. Never mind. Let's eat. There's nothing we can do until things happen. No point in worrying about them now. And with those words, they ate. Jack smacked his lips. Then there was a knock at the door. Chapter 5. The Making of a Sword The day shone brightly over the castle. The thin layer of snow which lay on the ground was melting where the sun struck the earth. A week ago it had been frozen, but now softened and turned in places to mud. Although Avery was a princess, she and her princess sister Riley still had to do chores. Avery, being the younger of the two, tended, some people say looked after, the ducks, goats and chickens. Riley took care of the rougher and larger animals, the lambs, pigs and horses, although sometimes Avery helped there too. Both helped the garden attend the garden, but spring wasn't quite ready yet. She still hid quietly in the shadows and behind trees, waiting for the warmer weather. 
Avery walked up to the coop, some say chicken house, a bucket filled with feed knocking against her leg. The chickens came running towards her, clucking and squawking around her ankles, jumping up on her feet, which made Avery laugh. A large rooster came charging round the corner, crowing at the girl, shooing the hens away from the princess. Oh, Franklin, stop, said Avery. You're a silly old rooster. I really don't mind your girls, and there's no need to be jealous. Avery reached down and ruffled, some might say messed up, the bird's feathers. Franklin crowed again and waited like a guard for the feed to be put in the flat tin pan for the birds. Once that chore was done, Avery collected hay and feed for the sheep and laid that out for them. Putting hay into the now empty bucket, she returned to the coop and collected eggs, thanking the birds as she did so. While Avery was doing all this, Riley was performing her own chores, mucking out the pony's stable and pigsty, some say pig pen, and then taking the manure, some might say poo, to the barn, where it was stored until it could be used as fertiliser, some say compost, on the garden. After that, Riley would feed the ponies and pigs. Once all that was done, she would groom, some might say brush, the ponies before she headed to the blacksmiths. Although Avery and Riley loved animals, there was something special and magical to Riley about the blacksmith's forge. Some days, Riley would try to get up especially early to see the smith load and light the forge with wood and watch it begin to burn. Riley would then run off to get her chores done before returning to the forge to see the smith work the bellows, pumping air into the forge to make the flames dance and cinders fly. She would stand on the half wall of the smithy and stare at the coals, watch them glow. Riley knew it was only the air making the red-hot charcoal appear to move, flicker and flutter, but she imagined a little and looked sideways to the left or to the right and tried to be not quite there. And then she could see shapes, patterns, and sometimes stories appear in the coals amongst the flames. To the older princess, there was magic in the forge. Riley leant over the rail and called out, Hello, Wayland, to the smith. Hello, back, your highness, he called over the roar of the bellows. Wayland's voice was as low as the sound of hammer hitting anvil was high. Riley sometimes felt his voice shake through her body, his voice was so deep. Wayland took an ingot, some might say lump, of metal and set it on the edge of the hot forge. He rubbed his hands down the length of his leather apron. Well, he said as he pushed wool into his ears. Riley grinned, opened the low half-door and skipped in, pulling wool from her string pouch and putting it in her ears. There was only one thing more intense than the heat of the forge, and that was the blast of sound from the great hammer hitting metal resting on the anvil. Riley took the heavy leather apron which was hanging from a hook and ducked her head into it. Taking the thick gloves Wayland handed her, she spun round so the smith could tie the strings of the apron behind her back. Riley poured the second glove on with her teeth. Wayland took some pincers, used them to pick up the ingot and handed them to the girl. Wayland bent down and his arms began to pump the heavy wooden and leather bellows. 
Riley held the metal tightly in the pincers and grinned as she watched the metal slowly transform, some might say change, from grey to red to yellow and eventually to almost white. Even with the wool in her ears, the sound of the roaring forge was not easily drowned out. The light danced. Her blue eyes watched the flames as they flew with sparks up under the hood and through the stack, some might say chimney, and up into the sky outside. The heat was fierce, but when Wayland nodded to Riley, she swung the metal ingot over to the anvil. Wayland already had one of his many hammers in his grip and pounded the metal ingot. The shock of the hammer hitting the hot metal on the anvil went right up Riley's arms as the blast of sound from the impact hit her ears. Sweat was soon running down the girl's face as she moved from forge to anvil and the ingot of metal began to change shape. Slowly, very slowly, it began to flatten a little and every few blows she would put it back in the firepan and Wayland would work the bellows until the metal grew white once more. Wayland twisted his hand around as a signal for Riley to turn the ingot. Slowly, the metal got longer. Together, Riley and Wayland were making her first sword. And so ends episode one. Chapters 1 through 5 of the story of Lindy Line. Come back tomorrow at the same time, same place, and we'll listen to some more. Thanks for being here. Look after yourselves. Wash your hands often. Bye.